Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll hear how Latino leaders in Gainesville are working together to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. I think that what this crisis has brought on is more awareness of the disparities that exist today, more understanding of the living conditions and working conditions of people within the community. And also in related news, here's the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of noontime today, there are 40,157 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,724, and there are 7,194 hospitalized. Again, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of noontime today. And later today, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp will give an update on the current status of the COVID-19 pandemic right here in Georgia. Governor Kemp will be joined by Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey. And you can hear more regarding the briefing during All Things Considered, hosted today by Jim Burris. And also, a one-on-one conversation with Dr. Toomey on today's edition of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands?, Hosted by our very own Sam Whitehead. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The term is hotspot, and most recently it refers to an area or location where there's been an increase in COVID-19 cases. Here in Georgia, a new hotspot has emerged, and it's in the city of Gainesville, up in Hall County. At the time of this conversation, there are 2,202 confirmed cases of COVID-19. It's one of the top five counties in Georgia with the greatest number of cases. Hall County is located in the northeastern portion of the state, and it also has a fairly large Latino community. The virus has hit this region pretty hard, but there are efforts to curb the spread of COVID-19. And here to talk more about this, Norma Hernandez, the leader of a local COVID-19 task force and head of the Northeast Georgia Latino Chamber of Commerce. Also, Dr. Antonio Rios, a clinician with the Northeast Georgia Health System. And Vanessa Sarazuza, founder and executive director of the Gainesville-based Hispanic Alliance of Georgia. Thank you all for taking the time. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Rios, I'm going to start with you right now, just through your lens. And if you could reflect on right now how you view this virus and what's happening in Gainesville and in Hall County and the concerns that you have about this outbreak in the community. So I think that this has been an evolution, has definitely been a learning experience. We started preparing as a health uh, system. We started preparing uh, early in, in March, and um, we have been internally having discussions, what could be the worst case scenario? So we've been uh, grabbing models uh, from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, the CHIMES model, to try to see how the cases are uh, ascending and predicting, trying to guess where we're going to be, when our peak could be, etc. What we started to identify early on is uh, large number of Hispanic patients that were testing positive, Mm -hmm. a large number of Hispanic patients within our hospital system. And very quickly, we tried to identify what was a common source of that. And we really couldn't come up with uh, a good answer other than many of these uh, folks were working at a poultry plant. Very quickly, we involved uh, industry leaders and Hispanic community leaders like Norma and Vanessa to try to uh, have discussions and try to see how we could stop the spread of the virus. 
So we learned that um, any type of industry with an assembly line production model is a risk, right? Mm -hmm. You're next, standing next to another person. We now know that there were many, a, there are many asymptomatic uh, carriers that can transmit the disease even in patients that don't feel sick. So very quickly, I think the Georgia Poultry Federation and other industry leaders started implementing the measures that we as subject matter experts decided that would be the best thing, following also the CDC guidelines to try to prevent the spread of the virus. And our community, our Hispanic community has been hit hard. Mm -hmm. um, Having said that, I think that there, it's a host of reasons as to why that that could have happened. It's not only the workplace, but it what is what happens outside of work. You know what happens at home. Having, in several instances, multiple families living in the same household, mm -hmm. having multiple generations in the same household, not quite comprehending the message or the severity of the illness. Uh, maybe we didn't do a good job in messaging uh, mm -hmm. the community and gatherings were still taking place and, and, and not watching the, the distancing, the six feet, the mask, you wearing mask, uh, hand hygiene, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a host of things, but I think that uh, what this um, community work has done is showcase the great work that can happen when you get a, a group of folks with the same goal. And uh, Norma and Vanessa have done an amazing job in really trying to get the message across the entire community, even to those folks that normally are on the fringe mm -hmm. and, and, and not able to receive communication and also the help they need with food, resources, et cetera. Norma, let me bring you into the conversation. You heard Dr. Rios talk about perhaps a better job of messaging. What initiatives are you all putting forward? We are still working in um, messaging and making the message to be a simple message to our community. We are trying to ensure our Latino community that the whole community, I should say, that um, we are all in this together and we care about each other. Uh, we have uh, worked with uh, Dr. Rios, of course, he's one of our heroes in town. And we are working with leaders like Vanessa and others in the community. Uh, we are employing or we are working with people that our community knows and trust. We have to take care of this. We thought that uh, by aiming, uh, presenting the message by somebody that they know and trust, um, it will be easier and it, it actually has worked. We have all, um, uh, we are doing Zoom meetings and, and we are telling each other what we're doing and where we're going. Uh, the message has been sent mm -hmm. and um, Every time that something is being done and activities being done, we do have results. So we are very proud to say that uh, on the 15th of May, we had our first testing right on Atlanta Highway, which is the heart of the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And we tested 853 people. Wow. That was awesome. Uh -huh. We didn't expect it that much. Uh, we are promoting no mask, no service to our community. It's being taken very well. We have already uh, placed posters and delivered face masks to 40, 38 to 39 businesses. And we have given many posters that I don't have the report of where they have been posted yet. Mm -hmm. But I believe that as of today, we should have already have 70 businesses that have joined. This task force just got started uh, on May 6th. That was a meeting that we put together for doc Dr. Toomey and, and General John King to come and, and and visit, they were concerned about our town. And from there, we just took off. Vanessa, something that stood out to me in what Norma was just saying, she kept talking about the importance of the community knowing and trusting where the message was coming from, knowing and trusting that the folks who are disseminating this information, they truly care. How important is that? Because we are talking about specific efforts for a specific community. It's very important. And first of all, I'd like to really thank um, Dr. Rios because I think that he <clears throat> has this investment in our community way before uh, COVID. And he has always um, served the community uh, with a heart of gold. And I, and I appreciate him. I appreciate the local hospital 
um, and also the health department because they they were out there at that event on on Saturday and they were there all day testing and uh, they have two more events this week. So testing is definitely not a, not a problem anymore um, for our community and, and you can get tested at, um, at, without any of those. But a, a trusted uh, voice in the community is uh, you know what, what we are. And from the very beginning, um, we have been sharing information and trying to educate the community about uh, COVID. Mm -hmm. But I think that our essential workers um, had no other choice than to go to work without a mask when uh, in times where you know, the CDC had not come out yet to say that a mask was even, you know, required or a good idea. And so we saw those poor essential workers going to work and not only poultry plants, we saw them working in, uh, you know, different manufacturing um, and different factories locally. They, they were working side by side and they were essential workers and they had to go and work and they had to deal with the person that was positive and that company had to deal with uh, as much or as little information as they had and what to do in those instances at the beginning of this um, crisis. So um, I think that, you know, we, we tried to um, deal with our community as far as the fears that they had in going to work mm -hmm. when somebody was positive, they were waiting to see if they didn't have to go to work, but they're critical essential if they work in a poultry plant and they were not going to stop uh, working. So we, we went through all of those different phases um, <clears throat> with our community and we felt it was a good idea to get Dr. Rios on a live with um, Hispanic Alliance. And we did that twice with him. And we had 4,000 views on our um, videos um, and questions and answers that they would either do privately or um, on our live. So we were very, very thankful to be able to get that um, information out uh, to our community um, in, in a timely manner. But a lot of these people did not have a choice other than to go to work for many reasons. Well, let me stick with you for a moment, Vanessa. You just said a lot of the folks did not have a choice because they needed to go to work for many reasons. In their household, that income is primary, more than likely. And also because they're critical, essential to the food supply of our nation, our state. Um, and so they didn't have a choice but to go and work. Um, and yes, they do depend on that work. Um, well, well, let me <clears> ask you this. Did you all have any conversations with the operators of the poultry plants or any other industry up there? And, and what was the response? I can take that. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, as we started hearing from our own clinicians and, uh, or, you know, that, that there was this cluster of uh, people that many of them have some sort of connection to the poultry plants, mm -hmm. you know, that's the dominant uh, employer in the, in our community. So, in some way, shape, or form, you're connected to somebody that works uh, in the poultry plants. Um, we immediately started uh, discussions with the Poultry uh, Federation uh, of, of Georgia and other industry leaders and started coming with uh, measures that we needed to put in place um, to be able to protect the workers. And uh, I think that as many of us have toured the poultry plants right now and have seen the work that they have done uh, could it have not been done earlier? Of course, you mm -hmm. know, but we didn't know. I mean, like uh, Vanessa said, early on, uh, I have a paper from uh, one of our Atlanta Hispanic heroes, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, that, uh, you know, early on in April, this was published. And at that time, still, the CDC hadn't implemented the recommendation for the uh, wearing the masks. We started really uh, being a little bit more aggressive as soon as we got the information. So you all have been inside some of these poultry plants and you see protective measures that maybe they weren't there before, but you see protective measures. And are they satisfactory to what should be happening? I think they are. I think that uh, the, uh, the Poultry Federation really sent out this uh, uh, guidelines for the plants and their temperature screening of all the employees. Mm -hmm. If people feel sick, they should not go to work. There are physical barriers in between the employees so they don't have direct contact with each other. They're staggering all the meal breaks so there's not a cluster of people at the same time in their dining areas and separating, uh, blocking spaces within the dining area so people can have a distance from each other. I think that they've done a real good job. Dr. Rios, I want to stick with you just for a moment because I'd like for you, if you can, 
to take our listeners through what a typical day may be like for you now inside the hospital and how you all are adapting to accommodate an increase in patients. So there's there's two aspects of, of the healthcare currently. You know, what happens within the hospital and what happens outside in the mm-hmm. in the doctor's offices. Within the hospital, we know that the, the numbers are down across the board. You know, the emergency room visits, the volume of patients in the hospital have decreased. And there's probably a, a few reasons for that. You know, patients are afraid to be in, come to the hospital, fearing they could uh, get infected, mm. which is not true. But um, that's the, the fear. The, the second is that we stopped all elective procedures, surgeries, uh, imaging, etc., cetera, uh, in order to try to learn, prevent uh, the numbers from increasing and also to learn how to deal as we are starting to ramp up those procedures again, starting to open our imaging centers, uh, et cetera. So we have uh, some COVID-specific units mm-hmm. in which, uh, you know, once the people go into those units, they have to be uh, properly gowned and uh, wearing all their protective equipment. We have designated areas where they put on the equipment, go into the units, and in many instances, this is really hard work. You know, sometimes there's not that chance for a break uh, Mm -hmm. whenever you feel like it, you know, because the break implies you have to come to this area to remove all your protective equipment and so that it can be uh, cleansed if it can be, and then you go back to break, and then you have to go back in. So these folks are spending many hours without the ability to even drink water, if mm. you will. So it's, it's a hard work, and it's emotional. We don't have visitors except on certain circumstances, uh, but for people that are in intensive care units, uh, we really don't have vi- uh, visitors. So the nurses and many times the doctors have to be on, on the phone or on iPads communicating with the family members and the condition of the patient. So that that adds time to the process. Mm. So there's the the stress, the emotional toll on these people that get really, really sick. And um, and 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 then on the outpatient side is the same thing. You know, we want to make sure that our patients feel safe. And if you are at risk, if you have any of the conditions that put you in a high risk category, we want to make sure that if you come to the office, it's because you absolutely have to come to the office. We've launched uh, within our group uh, the ability to do telehealth visits. Mm-hmm. And within Northeast Georgia Physicians, we're doing over 1,000 telehealth visits a day. So wow. we're now trying to bring more patients into the office, but again, to reassure them that they're being kept safe. Hmm. Norma, you all talked about testing. There's been an increase in people coming out getting tests. You've talked about the no mask campaign. You all have been instrumental in working with the poultry plants. Those are all three positives. What other challenges still exist? What other areas do you all want to tackle? And especially as you being the leader of the COVID-19 task force. I don't think that we have any anything against. I think people is, is joining. People is, is understanding what's going mm-hmm. on. We did start it with people not wanting to test. Um, they didn't feel secure, like, like Dr. Rio says, they didn't want to go to the hospital. So I think that we have convinced everybody that, yeah, you don't have to do that, but hey, look, it's right here. Like mm-hmm. today, we have two sites uh, of testing today. So, uh, and the tests are coming out really fast. I think mm-hmm. people is trusting, the community is trusting that we're doing a service and that we are here for them. I believe that we are convincing them that take care of themselves and try to take care of somebody else. Vanessa, let me bring you back into this conversation because I asked Norma about (laughs) what challenges she felt still were there. I'll ask you that same question. Are you all satisfied with obviously what you have been able to accomplish? But if there is something, some area, some subgroup within the community that you all haven't reached, what is it and how do you plan to address it? Well, as an organization, um, we have addressed uh, the need for access to um, uh, food for our community that's unemployed. Um, we saw uh, poultry plant workers and others, um, even construction workers that were not working because of COVID. They got sick because of um, because of this crisis. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, just families affected by this. And so we uh, 
organized two different strategies to address hunger uh, in our community during this crisis. And um, through a generous donation, we actually became our own food bank. Mm -hmm. So we um, address it through emergency food boxes that every um, family that's sick or affected uh, with COVID and cannot come out of their home. We leave a box of food for about a week um, through volunteers. We've had a ton of our community members um, wanting to get involved and, and helping each other. And also we did a food drive and our food drive in May um, brought uh, 750 families through. We got mm. uh, donations of uh, local um, chicken, 10,000 pounds of chicken, 2,000 um, uh, dozen eggs, um, Hawaiian bread, uh, rolls, um, tortillas. And so that with some of what we had um, as just dry goods and uh, canned, we were able to do our, our first drive-through distribution for our suffering community. And uh, 750 families in three hours is what we got. Mm. And our next one is June 6th. So we, we, we feel that we need uh, we still have those same committed partners uh, to help us address uh, hunger um, through this crisis with um, with them, and some, and we're expecting to get others that are adding on and uh, contributing uh, healthy um, foods for our children who are out of school and also don't have access to food now. Right, mm. so we're addressing some of those things. Our community was already living in poverty before this crisis hit. And so we, we see that uh, as an urgent matter for our community. And, and uh, we just rolled up our sleeves and got to work um, about feeding them and helping them. But I feel that uh, as, as a task force, we, we, uh, we need to uh, support, and we've talked about this a little bit uh, in, in our last Zoom meeting that we had, we need to address and help the businesses on how to prepare to serve customers you know, and open up and serve customers. Mm -hmm. So that's what we, you know, I think uh, is, is one of those um, needy things. And I think that we can, we can help support them as far as uh, giving them ideas on how to do that and share with them what the requirements are according to, to, to what kind of business they are. And of course, that's just like, you know, that's a chamber, that's a chamber basically function. I think, you know, Norma has just a lot of work to do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we, we basically are a social services community organization. And what we've, the beautiful thing we've seen about this is that our community has come together um, and has had a place to volunteer, has had a place to donate and a place to um, help others uh, during this. We've had like 40 volunteers helping with that uh, drive-through food distribution. Um, we've had donations come into our office of food from uh, community members that feel so fortunate to be able to be working and not sick that they're willing to share with others. So we've seen some beautiful things here in Gainesville um, from our Latino community. Um, and, and, you know, and we think it'll continue. Uh, we've really united as a community. We feel very happy. Mm. Vanessa, I'm going to stay with you. You can begin as we wrap up. What has been the biggest takeaway for you all in terms of what this pandemic has amplified in terms of the health disparities within the community what changes you hope come out of this, whether it relates to public health policy or just in your community? Um, I feel that our workers and especially our critical essential workers in the state, and I'm not just talking about Gainesville, I'm talking about those um, essential workers that provide food for our table while we're sitting at home during COVID, need to have a little more of our support as far as working conditions and access to health and health care. And also their working conditions should improve. I think that we are all are grateful and thankful for the work they do. When the pork plant closed, we've seen less meat and, uh, and we've panicked. And we have to tie those two together to actual human beings that are there providing that food for us. And, and uh, a lot of them sacrificing them and their families to be able to, to provide that food on our plate. So I think that that is one thing that I would expect and hope for um, better working conditions for our agricultural workers um, and seasonal workers and and that gratitude uh, as, as human beings that we can have for, for those sacrifices that others make to, to be able to, to have it be so easy for us to have a plate of food and at a reasonable mm -hmm. price on our plate. Yeah. Norma, what's your takeaway from all this and changes that you hope to come out of this? Can I just say a little bit about uh, the businesses that Vanessa mentioned, we have two task force members working in that area where we are advising or we're getting ready to advise the business, the Latino businesses, 
uh, how to reopen. We are also working with an organization that at this time has been helping us to clean, disinfect the taxi cabs, the businesses, the restaurants, once they are ready to reopen. So we got that in works and that is, uh, that's gonna work really good. But for me, I like to see, we have become one community. We have become um, a family, I will say. And this has been really nice, really awesome for our community because organizations are working together. Before we were on, the Latino Chamber was working this, Vanessa was working that, and somebody was working something else. So now we are work, working together. We are supporting Vanessa's food bank. Everybody is supporting this task force. So I think that is something that has worked together. The community has recognized all the services that are available. So for me, it will be yeah more um, support for our workers, of course, and just things to stay the way that we have put it together this time and maybe improve. Of course, we can improve on that. So let's just keep on thinking that everybody in our community are essential workers and everybody deserves to be treated important. And Dr. Rios, then I'd like for you to address then through your lens, what you hope changes in terms of the nation's approach to public health policy. I think that uh, what this crisis has brought on is more awareness of the disparities that exist today, more understanding of the living conditions and working conditions of people within the community. But like Norma and Vanessa said, it has brought us together. It has broken the walls or the silos between uh, our uh, English-speaking community, Spanish-speaking community, other uh, communities. We're all working together along with our local public health, our local health systems, schools, religious institutions, the state uh, legislature and officials, the state public health. Uh, it has been amazing to see how the collaboration has broken all those barriers. And what I would like to uh, see in the future is, like Norma said, that we continue working together mm -hmm. and um, that that public health continue to be at the forefront of everybody's mind, uh, you know, to assess how important it is. Really, this is all about public health. And I don't think they have gotten the recognition that they haven't gotten the support that they've needed to really be able to do all the things that we're doing right now, testing, et cetera. We're still dealing with some issues for housing. How do we deal with patients that are positive and can't quarantine at home uh, because there's no space or ability to do so, uh, so on and so forth. So we still have ways to go, but uh, I think that uh, continuing to work together will continue to uh, yield fantastic results across the board. Dr. Antonio Rios, a clinician with the Northeast Georgia Health System, and Vanessa Sarazuza, founder and executive director of the Gainesville-based Hispanic Alliance of Georgia, and Norma Hernandez, the leader of a local COVID-19 task force and head of the Northeast Georgia Latino Chamber of Commerce. Thank you all for taking the time. Thank, Thank you, you for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Be careful out there. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Last fall seems like a long, long time ago, given the current state of our nation. But I did travel to a local soccer field in East Point to learn more about the mission of a local organization called Soccer in the Streets. Their goal, to make soccer more accessible to Atlanta youth by building soccer fields, also known as pitches, near MARTA stations. And you might recall when I was out there, I showed off my soccer skills. Now, here's Soccer in the Streets Director of Programs, Tony Carter, telling us about why he personally got involved. I always think about, you know, the why of why I do this job, and I always think about 
the 10 year old version of myself and having this opportunity. I wish I had something like this to be able to play pickup soccer or to play mini pitch soccer style growing up. And I grew up here in Atlanta, Georgia. And just like I mentioned before, like you have these daunting spaces to kind of grow into the game. I wish I had something that was the opportunity to free flow and play a more creative style of soccer. There's that part. But then the fact that we're right across the street from a martyr station so that I could hop on a train and literally go to field to field to play. Whereas, you know, back in the day, I would have to walk, be in the hot sun all day, this and that, whatever. And, you know, transportation was always an issue here in Atlanta. But now that we're kind of hitting that issue of, okay, transportation won't have to be a big hurdle for someone just to play the game of soccer, which is a game that shouldn't cost much and doesn't need much to go to get it done. Well, now due to the COVID-19 pandemic, sadly, the soccer field in East Point is no longer open for soccer games, but it is serving a different purpose. And joining me again to tell us more about this is Soccer in the Streets Director of Programs, Tony Carter, and the organization's executive director, Phil Hill. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Morning. Phil, it's only fitting that I get a better assessment from you. Tony told me back then he was probably the best soccer player in the whole organization. Is that true still, sir? Yeah, we, we always let him live in that world. He's, uh, he's significantly younger than me, so you, know, you, you wouldn't want to trample on youth. <laughs> Tony, let me come back over to you for a moment. How difficult has it been to not be able to have the kids come to the pitch and work on their soccer skills and, or even just learn something new with soccer. How difficult has it been? It's been an extremely difficult time for us all. You know, obviously for everybody involved, you know, the interruption of the way we used to live has uh, impacted us all. But, you know, especially for the kids in our program and the families involved, you know, the physical activity is so important. And so the fact that so many of kids are you know, locked up in their houses the parents as well too they just want to get out and use that energy and do something healthy and of course people are being creative and we have been creative as well too but it just doesn't beat the feeling of being on the field with the kids and that energy and excitement and the challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis i mean we all are yearning to get back out there but it's 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 impacting it's hard it's tough you know to say the least phil as the organization's executive director you all like so many organizations, entities, businesses, whatever, everybody had to shift and make adjustments. What did you all talk about when you realized, okay, we have this pandemic, there's a shelter in place order now. Obviously, you you couldn't plan for a pandemic, but take us through the process of of the organization having to shift. I mean, everything we, we, we do is based on connection with the community the you know the whole station soccer program came from that because of the community telling us about the transportation issues the kids had so the first thing we did was we went and talked to the community so we talked to the parents mainly um talked to the kids and asked them what what their highest need was and back at the beginning of the pandemic it sort of came into two buckets the need for uh, education support and then the need for food so it really went around that healthy mind healthy body focus for us so we, we we retooled and we started providing programming and activities around that which was completely new to us so we learned quick we put together stuff quick and um, that's where we ended up with you know our programs around food and education and we're going to get to slices and strikes in just a moment but feel just so folks know the East Point pitch still remains closed for play and games, correct? And this is the case for all of the soccer in the streets fields? East Point is still closed. All, all of our facilities are currently closed at the moment. The, thing, the only thing we use East Point for the field down there is for food distribution, food the slices and strikes. Well, let's get into that. Tell our listeners about slices and strikes. So, as I said, the need for hot meals was was a big issue for kids. I mean, not being at school and getting nutritional support from being there was huge. So, the mini field we opened at Station Soccer East Point was done in conjunction with two small businesses there, Oz Pizza and Joel Buskin, which was an attorney. They, they sort of sandwiched the field 
So I got talking to Chris Wiley, who is the owner of Oz Pizza, and you know he says, "Well, I can provide pizza for the kids." So that's that was genesis of it. So we reached out to our kids in that community. We talked to the mayor of East Point and engaged them. They got the the word out, and that's where the slice came from. And then the strike came from. Mm-hmm. We assumed all of our kids had soccer balls, but very quickly it was apparent they didn't. So we started giving out the soccer ball with a piece of pizza. And that just put a smile on the faces of the kids. It gave them something to, to do when they returned home. And that's where slices and strikes came. So we started with the goal of distributing a thousand hot meals mm-hmm. to low-income kids. And we're in week five of that now. You're also working to provide one-on-one sessions with players. Tony, how does that work? Yeah, so as Phil alluded to earlier, as far as the educational support for the kids, that was a concern. So we uh partnered up with America Scores. We have DC Scores program where they have a curriculum that really does some written assignments. And so part of that is that we have a coach has a weekly call with a kid and they get to check in with them, see how they're doing, see how, you know, they're how they're dealing with this uh, stay at home order, just to, you know, make sure we're staying connected with them. But also they're walking them through some some written assignments where there's you know subjects such as community diversity inclusion some great topics of discussion and they're also getting some at-home soccer skills as well so they have a weekly video that they get to work on so we're trying to address the, the health part and the, the mental part as well too and just to as, as everybody knows staying connected is hard during these times but there's a lot of great conversations that have kind of come out of these discussions with the, between the coaches and the players and and even more so what we are hearing back from the parents is that the parents enjoy the conversations that they're listening on where to see that an adult is still, you know, invested in their child during this time period and that they're committed and to really help them through this tough period. And so it's it's really been a worthwhile, you know, it's, it truly is us trying to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons right now. Tony or Phil, and either one of you can answer this. How will the decision be made to possibly reopen the pitches or allow kids to come in? Maybe not the same number, maybe not games, but what will you all follow in terms of making that decision? So it's work in progress for us. I mean, we're following a number of what we call trigger points. So what U.S. youth soccer recommend and do is one, what professional soccer is doing is another one for example whether Mm -hmm. the kids go back to school or not that would be another one so most most of these trigger points that enable us to actually move back to doing partial or full interaction around soccer with the kids will will unfold with those types of things as as we move forward but you know clearly until we're very comfortable that having kids in close proximity to each other is not dangerous, then we'll, we'll stay doors closed. Gentlemen, as we wrap up, Tony, I know when I was out there, you and I both talked about how much we loved sports growing up. Not every kid may be as passionate about sports as you and I were growing up, but if you all could just reflect on this time and you know what you all see in terms of the importance of, of youth sports, and then here's an extraordinary time in our life where it's not able to be there for them. You know what that yeah, means. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's one of those, you know, unfortunately, you don't know what you have till it's gone type of thing. And then the fact that it's been taken away from us and the, the myriad aspects of it, where you know, from watching sports to just being a spectator, or you know, the actual just going out and playing with friends and everything. You know, the fact that that's been taken away. I mean, it truly is <laughs> has people even itching and yearning even more for it. So, and it's one of those things like, you know, I wonder if kids are going to be complaining about going to practice now. <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. In the future. <laughs> and so. Yeah, you I, and I it, never it, complained about practice, right? I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting time when we first come back. You know, I think kids like as soon as they get those lungs pumping and everything like that, they're like, whoo. I miss that burn a little bit. (laughs) Well, and, you know, you all both know that not just in terms of playing the game, but, you know, you can build life skills with kids around being part of a team. Phil, I'll give you the last word on that. You know, we are a social sport, and that's the, the, the core of it. And this whole mess has just illustrated to me the destructive nature of isolation. 
I was talking to one of our coaches, Coach Abdul, over in Clarkston, where we have a a, a big program with the refugee kids over there. And he heard from a 13-year-old boy he'd never heard from on Facebook. He'd been forever trying to get him to talk on Facebook to him, but he finally popped up. Because he was just like, Coach, when when can we come back? My life's not the same. And Coach Abdul's happy because he got him on Facebook and now he can talk to him about homework. <laughs> but <laughs> it just really, you know, just really brought that home. So um, Clarkston, they're going to get their own slices and strikes starting mm-hmm. this Wednesday. So it, it, it'd be good to see the faces and the kids. And, you know, hopefully we'll be out there again pretty soon. Well, Phil, that being the case, do you think it's possible you all could be back out there this summer? I would hope we're out there in some some format in the summer. Yeah, I, I, I really hope we'll be out there then. We, we also hope to be continuing our, our, our food distribution programs as well, because the summertime for a lot of our kids who are in an at-risk situation mm-hmm. normally gets worse in summer because they're out of school. A lot of them are latchkey kids, sing, sure. single parent families, mother is normally working so that's that's when a lot of the the negative behaviors can creep in so you know we we just hope to be out there everyone's waiting the kids are waiting the coaches are waiting and the fields are ready soccer in the streets executive director phil hill i was also joined by director of programs tony carter thank you both for taking the time and thank you both for what you're doing for the kids and their families during this time thanks Royce. thank you for having us Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, those of you who are faithful listeners know that normally around this time of year, here on Closer Look, we talk to graduates as they embark on their new journeys. However, this year's journey is a little bit different for a lot of graduates because there was no traditional ceremony. And it's a little different for this class of 2020. Most graduation ceremonies have gone virtual and many students completed their coursework online instead of in the classroom. That's the case for Georgia State University. On behalf of the entire Georgia State community, its faculty, staff, and alumni, I extend our most sincere congratulations and express our hope that you'll always remain an active member of the Georgia State family. We'll see you, the members of the class of 2020, at our in-person graduation ceremonies later this year. Congratulations. Now, that was President Mark Becker addressing graduates at the university's virtual ceremony that took place on May 6th. And now, although graduates can't join me in studio, we still want this tradition to continue. And this is a little bit different. So joining me now to share his story is David Gaines. He's 16 years old. He's the youngest graduate candidate in Georgia State University Perimeter College's class of 2020. But his accomplishments aren't stopping there, and I'll let him tell you why. David, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for letting me have this opportunity. It's great to be here. And I attended GSC Perimeter. Mm -hmm. I started at 14, 2018, and I was pursuing my associates first. And I started at Perimeter because it was much closer, and Mm -hmm. and I was homeschooled. So I wanted to have that still that small classroom setting so I could adjust to going to that big downtown campus. So now in the fall, that's where I will be going, get my bachelor's and then I graduate in spring of 2021, then med school. So David, right now, I understand you're studying for the MCAT. Yes. And when do you take that? June 5th. You ready? Yes. Let's talk about your journey so far. When we opened the conversation, you you laid out what your plans were. You've always known at an early age this is the path you wanted to take in the medical field? I'd say I always, since five years old, I'm in my first pediatrician appointment, and I just always wanted to go into medicine. I always wanted to help people, and that, that passion has never faded. At first, I wanted to be a pediatrician, but as I grew older, I found more of a passion in neurology, and that's where I currently want to be is a neurosurgeon and neurologist. So you knew at the age of five that there was something about this environment, this space that you wanted to work in. Helping people, not just helping people from like behind the screen. I want to be able to physically help people and not just people who are sick, but also their family members because there's emotional and physical healing. Yeah. Let's talk about that transition you talked about. You know, you were homeschooled, but then you had to make this transition to, you know, taking classes on campus. What was that like for you and how did you prepare for that? Honestly, I didn't, there wasn't really anywhere to prepare this 
I was in public school. I started homeschooling after the third grade. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was acclimated to public school setting. Going to college, it was a bit different since my peers would be much older. But honestly, being in an environment, it was actually much more comfortable for me and I enjoyed it a lot. I think Perimeter offers a great adjustment for new students, especially if like if high schoolers or homeschooling students, because it is such a small classroom setting. Mm -hmm. You can develop a great relationship with those professors and other office faculty members. Was there an adjustment process for you because you talked about, you know, being younger than most of your classmates? How did you maneuver through that? Well, since I was homeschooled, my sister, she was a STEM, she was also in STEM, mm -hmm. and I was always around her and listening to her. I think that's why I got my love from biology from as well. So I was always acclimated to being around people much older than me. So it was not much of an adjustment process. And David, I understand also that your passion and your desire to work in the medical field also is personal for you, correct? Yes. It, my mom, I had my sister, she had, a, she had a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. And I also have some medical conditions like asthma. And so I, also, I know personally how it is going from the hospital. And I want to be able to help people because I know it can be very emotionally challenging going to and from the hospital. So being able to help that process be easier and then having a doctor that listens to you, I think that's very important. So I want to be able to help those people as much as I can and get, again, hands-on experience. Let's talk about your mom for a moment and what, <laughs> what it means to have her along this journey for you. You're not finished. You're still going. But what does it mean to have mom along? I will say right now, I could not do any of this without my mom. She, I asked her in third grade, mom, can I homeschool? And she was so supportive. And of course, it's a team effort. If I, if I don't put in my part, I had, she puts in her part every time. If I ask for something, she would do it and give 110%. So of course, I will give 110% back. She has been so supportive. She helps me find these opportunities. She never lets me give up. It's always great. And she, and one thing I will say is she never pressures me into medicine. Mm -hmm. This has always been a passion. I know some people can feel very pressured by family members, but she's always been supportive. Say, if you want to change, if you want to go into any other field, you can. Mm. So it's great having that support system. And for my other family members, like my aunt and my sister. So in the fall now, you are going to move to Georgia State's campus downtown. Any concerns about being, you won't be too far from mom, though? We're actually relatively close to downtown. I'm, this semester, I took classes downtown, two classes downtown. And it wasn't much of a transition process. I think because I was at Perimeter for so long that I was more acclimated to the 100, 100 student body mm -hmm. in a classroom. Let me get your take on this pandemic, David, because you are a, a future medical scientists in, in a sense. So what has been your takeaway about this virus for you? I knew when it was starting, I was very concerned about it because of the most transmission it had. It could spread so easily. Mm -hmm. And then once it progressed, I believe on March 12th, when they said we're gonna cancel graduation, I really knew then this is gonna be something very serious. And mm -hmm. it has a personal impact as some family members have lost their jobs because of this virus. Mm -hmm. I think a one important takeaway is for microbial community unfortunately it isn't glamorous so it isn't in the news a lot until it's too late where it's a pandemic i think if we put more emphasis on how microbes work and how they can spread we can prevent this from happening again or at least lower the impact it has where the, the economy is falling because if people are losing jobs now so many people are having to file for unemployment mm -hmm. because of a simple microbe and so david i want to be very clear I understand that, and I'm not, I'm not going to say you want to be, but you're going to be a neurologist, mm -hmm. a neurosurgeon, and an yes. attorney specializing in health sector law and policy. I was attending an event in Fulton County CEOs of Tomorrow Conference. They had a law section of it, and I really had just found a passion in that. And my, I really want to focus on medical malpractice, mm -hmm. especially helping underrepresented minorities who don't get proper treatment. Mm -hmm. I actually have a friend now who's t helping me with Spanish. I want to be able to help people who are non-native speakers to get the rights they deserve for medical malpractice. David, you're going to do a lot in life. <laughs> Thank you. As we wrap up, what is your message about having a passion and being able to see that through, even though there might be some challenges along the way? But what is your message about taking your passion and that passion becoming the work that you do? Everything always seems like it's such a long way. But I have to say one of the ways it's been easiest is there's little bits like taking by taking my first biology class and seem like, okay, I can actually do this. It doesn't seem like just a dream or and then meeting your friends who can also support you, your family when you get support. I'll say just never giving up. But if you do feel like you're gonna burn out, 
take some time to relax, take a, take a step back. That's something that's important. And I've always asked my mentors is, if you, how do you overcome burnout? Because mm-hmm. burnout will happen, but it's just overcoming it. That's the process. Taking a step away, finding another hobby, just whatever works for you to overcome that burnout. Well, let me ask you this, David. What do you do in your downtime? How do you balance this incredible coursework <laughs> and then with just being a typical 16-year-old? Well, then watching movies and watching TV with my mom, my other family members, and playing with my dogs. I actually do play video games. And we I used to attend tournaments before we, everything was shut down mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. That was one of my downtime hobbies. And I would say I also like reading a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, what's your video game? What's uh, I used to play I can't think, Smash Brothers. That was definitely one thing that's helped me a lot. <laughs> Well, David, uh, best of luck to you. I appreciate you taking the time. David Gaines, the youngest graduate candidate in Georgia State University Perimeter College's class of 2020. And David is on his way to Georgia State. David, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And say hi to your mom. Oh, she's right. Hey, come on. Yeah, come on, mom. Mom. Okay. Mom, also known as Pamela. David said some wonderful things about you being a part of his journey. What do you want to say about David? Uh, He has been, um, since he was five years old, he's always known what he's wanted to do. He, you know, when he was five, we uh, had left the doctor's appointment. And as soon as he got back in the car, he said, I want a stethoscope, that thing she wears around her neck, the hammer, which, and the um, white coat. (laughs) So he's always been, um, a hard worker. The challenge has been for me mm-hmm. is, you know, <laughs> reminding people that there's still a child in this young man's body when you've got a nine-year-old that has completed a 10 or 11 page research paper. All right. Well, so. Pamela and David, best of luck to you both. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. David, we're all proud of you. Thank you Thank so you much so for much. having him on. All right. Y'all take care. You too. You too. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.